All right, guys, good morning. If we can, let's open up our Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, we're going to be starting at verse 25. I'd like to dismiss our kids to our children's ministry. Glad to have you guys with us. You guys can make your way to the back uh, with your teacher. Once again, again, Galatians chapter 3, verse 25. And today we're going to go all the way to chapter 4, verse 7. If you grab one of the church Bibles, it is page 974, 974. And if you guys need a Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers will hand you guys a Bible. Uh, my name is Kenson. I have the honor of serving as a pastor at Park, specifically our Bridgeport location. So really glad to be with you guys here today. Uh, also as well, you guys might have noticed that uh, your pastor, Rafe, and his wife, Sarah, is not here today. Um, they're actually um, at a memorial service for Sarah's grandmother. Uh, oh, Sarah's right here. Hey, oh, hey, Sarah. Oh, oh just Rafe. Just, just Rafe. So Sarah's actually right here. Sarah, it's, it's good seeing you here. It's good seeing you here. It's good seeing you here. So, so glad to see you here. Rafe wishes he could be here. Uh, he, he, he sends his wishes. Uh, that's why I'm up here uh, uh, once again. Uh, he was supposed to preach here today, but I have the honor of uh, handling the word uh, today. And if I can also just make a quick mention to Nate, thanks for bringing up earlier during our greet time that Christmas is coming way too soon, right? Uh, I was at Costco yesterday in Home Depot, and I was like, man, why are all the Christmas trees up? What happened to Thanksgiving, right? It hasn't even passed yet, so... Uh, it's, I don't know, I don't know what to say right now. All right, so let's go ahead. Galatians chapter 3. Sorry, I was kind of my little thing, soapbox. So Galatians 3, starting verse 25, all the way to chapter 4, verse 7. Let's read our verses, and then we'll jump right in, all right? So here we go. Chapter 3, verse 25, verse 9, 7, 4 in the church Bibles. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Chapter 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of God. One of the longest-running Broadway plays is the musical Annie. Annie's a story of a girl who was left at the steps of an orphanage as a baby. And when we first see Annie in the musical, she's 11 years old and stuck in a very horrible situation. The matron of the orphanage is forcing her kids to work in sweatshop conditions, profiting off their labor. And one day, an assistant to Oliver Warbucks, a billionaire in New York City, comes to the orphanage looking for a child to stay at his mansion for the Christmas holidays. Mr. Warbucks was a cold businessman, and he wasn't doing this out of the kindness of his own heart, but to, but to fix his reputation in the city. But over time, Mr. Warbucks, his heart begins to soften, and he learns to love Annie as his own daughter. So he buys her a locket for her neck to replace the broken one that she always wears. But when Annie sees this locket, 
She breaks down in tears because this broken locket that she wears is all that she has left of her parents. And she wants nothing more than to be with them. So Mr. Warbucks makes a pledge and offers thousands of dollars as a reward in finding her parents. Well, a couple scheme up a plan to pretend to be her relative. And just before they kidnap Annie and take all the money, their scheme gets exposed and Annie discovers that her parents died when she was a baby. In the final scene of the play, Mr. Warbucks goes to Annie, bends his knee, eye to eye with this little girl, and offers Annie again the locket that he bought for her. And as Annie holds it in her hands, she sees engraved in the locket to Annie with love. And with tears, she hugs him tightly and says, I love you, Daddy Warbucks. You know, today we continue back in our sermon series in Galatians. And we're at a place where many commentators say that this is the climax, the crowning jewel of our salvation. It's the beautiful promise that God adopts us as his children. Verse 26 captures all of it. If you want to underline it, you can. Verse 26 says this, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Now, to catch you guys up on what's going on here, Paul's writing this letter to the churches that he's planted in the region of Galatia, and false teachers called Judaizers have come in, and they teach a message contrary to the gospel of grace, that they're teaching these non-Jewish believers that grace is not enough to be accepted before God. You also need works. You need to be culturally Jewish. You need to follow the law. You need to be circumcised. And it's when you do all these things, God will then finally and fully accept you. Paul writes this letter to confront and correct this false teaching. He spends chapter 1 to 3 defending the gospel of grace and specifically the doctrine of justification. That what makes us right before God is by grace alone, by faith alone, and not by works. Jesus has paid it all. But today Paul takes the good news one step further and gives us the best news of our salvation. That not only are we justified, we are also adopted. And the reason this is the best news is because it's in a doctrine of adoption that God did not just want to save us from sin, but that the reason he saved us was so that we could be his children. Or if I can put it this way, let me show it to you here. Justification is being right with God. Adoption is being loved by God. You know, J.I. Packer, one of the best theologians in the last 100 years, said this about adoption in his book, Knowing God. And let me just show you the quote here. He says this. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God, the judge, justification is a great thing but to be loved and cared for by God the Father, adoption, is greater. Adoption is the crowning jewel of our salvation. Of all the names God loves to hear, his favorite is Father. And the reason we know that is because that's the one that is used most. 
while on earth. Jesus called God Father over 200 times. In the first words recorded of Jesus, he said to his parents, Mary and Joseph, I need to be at my father's house. When Jesus was about to breathe his last breath, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When Jesus teaches us how to pray, the first words are, Our Father. God's heart is a father's heart. It is an adoptive heart. It's a heart that longs to have a relationship with us. Look at verse 6 here in chapter 4. It says this, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. When Paul uses the word Abba here, he is telling us that through the Holy Spirit, we have intimacy with God. That in this historical context, Abba was an Aramaic term that literally meant Papa, Daddy, my Father. It's the name for Dad that signified confidence and assurance. It was a word of emotion, feeling, spontaneity. It's like my boys. As soon as they wake up, they're shouting, Daddy. And if I'm sleeping, they don't care. Daddy, it's time to play. Daddy, I'm hungry. Daddy, I pooped. You know, wherever it's at, right? Go clean it up. My kids, without hesitation, run to me, call out to me. They don't raise their hand. They don't ask for permission. They know that they can just come right to me. Why? Because they know just how important they are to me. You know, Tim Keller, a pastor and author, put this on his Twitter a few weeks ago. Let me just show it to you. It stuck out to me. And he said this, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. When God adopts us as his children, it's so that we can have a loving and intimate relationship with him. But here's the thing. Not only in adoption does God give us himself as our dad, it's also in adoption he transforms us into Christ, his beloved son. Look at verse 26 here. Verse 26 says, for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. Now, Paul here is very deliberate in using the word sons of God. There are plenty of other places in Scripture where Paul says children of God to include both men and women. But in these verses, he focuses on the sonship of adoption. Now, I know that this can sound a little chauvinistic. Okay, that's, that's God saying way to go, keep it up, okay. But, but we understand, right. But when you guys understand the historical context, Paul is actually breaking through every glass ceiling. During this time in history and in many ancient cultures, Women could not inherit the land. And because of that, they had very little power. They had very little rights. It was only through the son could he legally receive the family's inheritance. So when Paul writes these churches that are filled with men and women and says to all of them that when you put faith in Jesus Christ, you are all adopted, guess what? You also all have sonship. Men and women, you are all equal heirs of God's promised blessing. This was a radical teaching in that culture. And Paul continues on by saying in verse 27, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. To put on Christ literally means to be clothed in Christ, to be covered in Christ. In other words, when we're adopted as sons by professing faith in Jesus, God now treats us and sees us like his one and only son, Jesus Christ. His status is now our status. His inheritance is now our inheritance. His beauty is our beauty. 
through adoption, what is true of Jesus is now true of us. This is our identity. It's no longer in what we do. It's not who our parents say we are. It's not about what our annual income might say about us. It's not even how I'm feeling who determines who I am. My identity is in whose I am. I am a child of God. Amen? This is the crowning jewel of our salvation. And it's in this doctrine of adoption that make this little tiny faith like Christianity change the entire Greco-Roman world. During the time of the Apostle Paul, adoption was something to be avoided. You know, during the Roman Empire, it would not be surprising for poor families to discard their babies into the trash. If they had some deformity or if it was a really hard pregnancy, they thought that the baby must, must have issues, so they tossed the baby out. Or if the baby was a girl, there wasn't just enough upside to raise these kids. So for these infants that were unwanted for whatever reason, gender, disability, economical reasons, they would just be put out with the garbage, left on the side of the road, left at the city gate. And very often, this is where slave traders would come in, take these babies, and raise them for awful purposes, for prostitution, slave work, gladiator games. It's in the midst of this that Christians rise up and begin to do something incredible and countercultural. They begin adopting these throwaway children and making them a part of their families. Why? It's because of the doctrine of adoption. They knew through Jesus they had been adopted into God's family. Their theology informed their practice. Their actions came from their identity. Now here's the question for you. Does knowing that you are a child of God fundamentally change the way you live? Is that your identity, a child of God? You know, in the movie, The Shawshank Redemption, you know, the character played by Morgan Freeman is released from prison and is working in a grocery store as a bagger. And when he finishes bagging a customer, he raises his hand to his boss and says, hey, boss, can I use the restroom? And the boss is kind of like, get over here, get, get over here. And he pulls him in. He says to Morgan Freeman, anytime you need to use the bathroom, just use it. You don't always have to ask me to use it. For Morgan Freeman, even though his status has changed and he was now a free man, he was still living like he was in prison. For some of us, even though we've been justified and been, been adopted by God, and we know this to be true in our heads, and spiritually this is what's true of us before God when we have a genuine faith in Christ, but practically we still live like slaves. You know, Paul says this in chapter 4. Look at chapter 4 here, verses 1 and 2. He says this, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. For though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now Paul here is talking about a young child who is an heir to a wealthy estate. But the son cannot claim this estate until he reaches a certain maturity. So until that time comes, this child is no different than a slave in the house. Because this child, just like a slave, is being supervised, being controlled, being disciplined by these guardians. Now, who are these guardians that enslave? We talked about this last week. Paul is trying to tell us that it's the work of the law. 
It's finding our worth and acceptance in our performance. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that anytime you live off of a works-based salvation, anytime you live off of your performance, you're still living like a slave. That if your Christianity is nothing more than rules, do this, do that, more of this, less of this, that is not freedom. You are still in bondage. Friends, who are you today? Are you living as a slave or as a child? You know, on the screen here, I want to put up a list to help us diagnose what is most true of our hearts. I have one side that says slave of the law and one side a child of God. So let me just go ahead and work through these and look in your own hearts. What is most true of you here? So first is this. You live, a slave here, right, you live on a succeed and fail basis. You need to look good and be right. You are performance oriented. Is this you? Do you find yourself having a hard time confessing your sins? Do you care more about your reputation than being right with God? You are a slave. Your identity is in people-pleasing. Or are you a child of God and learning to live in daily conscious partnership with God? You are not fearful. To live by the law is to live with an extreme level of anxiety because the law is not there to save. The law is given to condemn. The law reminds us of just how far away we are of God's standards. And for some of you, you are crushed with anxiety. Am I good enough? Will I be rejected if I don't measure up? Can I just encourage you that if you are a child of God, these things are no longer true of you. In 1 John 4.18, it says, perfect love drives out fear. If you're an adopted child, there is no room in your heart for crushing worry and crushing anxiety because your heart is now filled with the Father's love. Here's the second list. A slave tends to be ungrateful, is complaining, bitter, has a critical spirit, tears down others. One of the ways that you can know if you're a slave is by the way you treat others. You're always comparing yourself to others. So if other people are doing better than you, you need to tear them down. Or if they're not living in a way that is up to your standard, instead of being gracious, you demand from them, and again, you tear them down. When you look at your life, do you consistently see yourself tearing other people down? Do you see yourself being hypercritical? If so, that is a slave characteristic. And do you also know why you do that? It's because that is exactly how you're treating yourself. You're beating yourself up, so now you beat other people up. But a child of God, look at this. You rely on the Holy Spirit to guide the tongue. You praise, edify, give thanks, encourage. Have you guys ever been around people like that? That when you engage them, they just fill your soul. That there's such a blessing to you. Do you know why? It's because they're pouring from a heart that is full. A heart full of love and joy. Because they have a loving relationship with their heavenly father. And here's the final one. A slave needs to be right, safe, secure, unwilling to fail. Do you take risks for God? You know, a major issue with Western Christianity is that it's too safe and comfortable. That it's so easy to be neglectful and sharing the gospel with my neighbor, co-worker, and family member. Even though, even though I've opened up the Bible and I understand the eternal consequences that they are facing. But you know what? I still stay quiet. Why? Well, it's because I don't want to look, be looked down upon. I don't want them to unfriend me on Facebook. I don't want that. 
But as a child of God, you are able to take risks and even fail because of your righteousness in Christ. Who cares what they say or think about me? The only opinion that matters is my heavenly Father's opinion. I am secure in my daddy's presence. There is nothing that they can say to me, do to me, that my heavenly Father hasn't given to me or has promised me better. Now let me ask you, when you look at this list, what is most true about you? Are you walking as a child? Is your relationship with God close and intimate? Or are you still living like a slave? Are you trusting in your performance to make you lovable? If this is true of your heart, you will never experience God as your Abba Father. You will never know what it is to run to his arms. You will never know what it is to just to enjoy being with him because he is not someone to love, but you have made him into someone to fear because you can't let go of your performance. You make yourself a slave and you make him someone to fear. So what's the good news for us as slaves? This is the good news. Our adoption is based on grace. Look at verse 26 here. It says this. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Through faith. God doesn't love us and accept us because of our performance. He brings us in because we have trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's when we trust, not perform. It's when we trust, we receive all the rights and blessings of being his children. You know, in Matthew chapter 3... Jesus gets baptized, and as during his baptism, the father, just, he just can't resist. He parts the cloud, and with delight, he shouts out, this is my son, who I am well pleased. Now, here's the question I want to ask you. When the father expresses his pleasure in his son, is this before or after his earthly ministry? It is before his earthly ministry. Has he casted out demons yet? Not yet. Has he raised the dead? Not yet. Has he walked on any lakes? Not yet. Has he healed any sick? Not yet. Not to our knowledge. Has he gone to the cross? Not yet. So how in the world could God be pleased with him? Jesus hasn't done anything yet. This is what I need you to see. Before Jesus did anything for God, he was already loved by God. Our relationship with God does not begin with performance or works. It begins with love, approval, and affection. Because our God is a God of grace. Our God wants to be known as our Father. And this is the good news that can free us from the pressure to reform or to become somebody. Because our worth has nothing to do with us. It isn't in our possessions, in our talents, in our tattoos, in our money or accomplishments. Nor am I defined by my divorce, by my deformity, by my debt, by my dumb choices. I am God's beloved child, period. Amen? And for God, our adoption is just like human adoption. It came at a huge cost. It cost God his one and only son. Verse 4 and 5 here says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. When God adopts us, 
we have to remember that we were not cute and talented like Annie, okay? We were not. The Bible says that before adoption, we were objects of wrath. That we weren't just orphans without a father. We were orphans who rejected our father. That everything in us turned against God. If God was to adopt anyone, we would be the worst choice. We were broken. We acted out. We're prone to violence. We're rebellious. We have emotional issues, addictive issues. We come from a long line of family sin. How many human adoptive parents, if you were told, oh, this is the kid right over here and this is all the issue, how many of us would say, oh, yeah, you know, I, I want that kid? Not very many. But this is the good news of God's grace. God says, I want that kid. God says, I want you. Praise God that there was nothing in us to draw us to him, yet he was determined to redeem us. He was determined to pay the price. And if you need proof, just look at the cross. Verse 4, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law. Jesus could not li could live the life that we couldn't live. He obeyed the law perfectly. He suffered the punishment that we deserve. And he did it all with the limitations that we experience as humans. Why? It's so on that cross, he could take our place and give us his place. God could not pay a greater price to make us his. This is why adoption is the crowning jewel of our salvation and not good marriages and not good grades and not a comfortable life and not health, wealth, and prosperity. It's not even a ticket to get out of hell. The jewel of our salvation is not that we get stuff from God, but in adoption, we get God as our Father. Amen? Amen. So what's some application here? Let me just give you two applications here. The first is this, pray, pray. When God adopts us and makes us his child, he wants to spend time with us. And with just like all relationships, he want, we want to see that grow, but the only way that it grows is if we talk to one another. Prayer is how we grow and experience intimacy with our heavenly Father. Now I know that without doubt here that as soon as I started a sermon talking about God is our Father, it was a hard ideal to wrestle with. That it's hard for us to think about being close to our dad because our human fathers come to mind. And can I let you, let you guys know that for myself, this was a struggle that I had early on in my faith. You know, my dad was not an affectionate person, and I grew up very fearful of my dad. Some days when he would come home from work, I wouldn't know if he would be in a happy mood and if he wanted to play with me, or if he would come in and be in a sour mood or just have a, just a, a really, really bad temper. Now, please hear me. I love my dad, and I know he loves me. And I know now, looking back, that he raised me in the very best way he knew how to raise me. And I will always be grateful to him. But I share this because when I first became a believer, I brought a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety into my relationship with God. That everything that I felt about my human father, I imposed onto my heavenly father. And because of that, my relationship with God was more of a formality it wasn't intimate. I didn't pray to enjoy him. I prayed because I had to. I prayed to confess sin. But I never prayed. I never engaged God just because. You know, for some of us, we struggle in the same way. It's hard to experience God as daddy. It's hard to feel close to him. 
I want to encourage you. Your heavenly father is nothing like your earthly father. Your heavenly father, his love for you is unconditional. His faithfulness is unwavering. His patience and kindness will never run out. Our God is a good, good father. Talk to him. Pray to him. And just like any good dad with his kids, he enjoys to be with you. He enjoys to be with you. Here's the second application. Be part of a local church. Be part of a local church. Verse 28 says this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. When we're adopted, we're adopted into a family. Now, let me just spend a moment here to make clear that this verse is not saying that culture and race and gender don't matter. It does matter because it's in our diversity and unity that we get to show off God's diversity and unity in the Trinity. It's also in diversity and unity we get to show off in the final days when every nation, tribe, and tongue will declare Jesus as Lord. It's in our diversity. God will get the most glory. Okay, so it's in these verses, Paul is not minimizing our differences. Instead, Paul is saying that in Christ, he brings them together, all these differences under his lordship through faith. That these differences are no longer things that are divisive, that, 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 bring, that bring division amongst us. But these are things that we now get to celebrate as a family. And when Paul says that we are now one in Christ, he is talking about the family of God. He is talking about his church. When we get God as father, we also are adopted into a family. We also have brothers and sisters, cousins, nieces, aunts, and uncles. We have them all. At Park, the way that we live out this adoption is here on Sundays in a broad way and also in small groups in a deeper way. Small groups are groups of, of 8 to 10 people who meet on a weekly basis to apply the word. It's in small groups that we learn week after week what it means to grow as a family of God. Now, I can understand why people wouldn't want to commit to a local body because churches are messy, it's filled with people problems. And sometimes the people in the church, they just drive you nuts. But here's the thing. Isn't that what family is? Isn't what family, I, drive my, I know I drive my family nuts. You know, that, that's what makes us family. No one drives us crazier than our family. But did you also know there is no one that we love more than our family? It's in God's wisdom. He uses our messiness for our sanctification. It's how he makes us more patient, loving, kind. If you are a Christ follower, you have been adopted into a family called a local church. To be a Christ follower and not to be connected to a local church is like an orphan without a family. You know, as we wrap up, let me just share with you one more quote from J.I. Packer. He said this in his book, Knowing God. He also said this. What is a Christian? The question can be, best, can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. Adoption is the crowning jewel of our salvation. And what that means for us is that the most wonderful thing that can ever be called of us is not boss, pastor, doctor, teacher, husband, wife, father, 
you know, mom, friend, the best thing that can ever be called of us is a child of God. There is no higher blessing, no greater privilege. Amen. Amen.